intentional living. So just in the time we have, I want to look at the darkness in John's gospel. And we're going to look at really just verse 5. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness, the darkness does not overcome it. And then from darkness in John's gospel, we're going to look at light in John's gospel. And then we're going to look at the idea of living in the light. So darkness in John's gospel. Uh, John is a painter. John is a poet. He is a, uh, an artist here. He has had a long time to reflect on Jesus Christ. And he writes his gospel with an extraordinary introduction. And he uses this phrase that the darkness does not overcome this light. What does he mean by this darkness? What kind of darkness? And of course, right away, we might think of moral darkness, right? This is just evil, right? You think of Satan. You think of, uh, of, of people who do evil, pe- people who are evil, right? Well, but John, really, it's interesting. As you look at John as a book and you begin to study it and you begin to see how evil is manifesting itself, it is a particular kind of darkness. It is a religious darkness. It is a cross your arms, who are you, what what is your authority? Where are you from kind of religious darkness? And so I'm going to propose, along with a theologian, Peter Leithart, who suggests that it's not only can we conclude, yes, this is moral evil, but it is the evil of Judaism. It means what John is in t- intending here is to say that What's happening in the shining light, Jesus, who appears on the scene, the dawn of a, of a new era, it means that the old era, the old way is over. Just like at some point we all say the night is over. At some point, maybe it's 4.45 in the morning, at some point enough of the sun is shining, enough evidence is around us that we would say, it is no longer night. That is what I think John wants for us to understand in John 1, 5. That the light is shining and a new era has dawned upon the earth. It is the era of grace. And Judaism cannot overcome it, cannot with, uh, withstand it. It is, it is a, a Christ's light is going to grow into every aspect of, uh, of the new day. And when John the Baptist comes on the scene, we see him in, uh, in, in John's gospel here, chapter 1. And uh, he's the one who proclaims that the Lamb of God uh, has appeared on the scene. He's the one who declares that at the, at the banks of the Jordan River, that when Jesus comes to associate with the sinners who were repenting, Jesus now d- declaring himself one with sinners, John sees the Lamb of God who gives him... Gives him gives his life away for the life of the world. And it's at this point, messengers are sent from Jerusalem. Who are you, John? By what authority do do you do these things? And we sense already in John's gospel, early on, there is deep, serious resistance to Jesus and to his messenger, John. And of course, we were going to see that the darkness... The darkness of legalism is over. The age of grace has arrived. What is darkness in John's gospel? Observe, observe the, the antagonism of, that Jesus receives even when he does miracles in John's gospel. The darkness, first and foremost, is religious darkness. 
And then just secondly, let's explore the idea of, of light in John's gospel. Notice John's very clear. He uses the metaphor of light to describe this one who is going to be embodied in human flesh. And there's a, if you look at translations of, of John chapter 1, verse 5, the connection between light and darkness is around the word, uh, which is sometimes translated, the darkness did not comprehend it. In the ESV, it says, did not overcome it. There's some ambiguity in the word used there, different translations. Does it mean that people just didn't understand the light? Did it mean that the, the darkness wasn't able to overcome the, dark, the, the light? And I think in the context, that's probably the correct way of looking at it. And I think that relates more truly to how darkness really connects or relates to, to light. And this, what I mean by that is this, is when you light a candle in a room or you turn on a flashlight or you turn on a small light, not a big light, just a small light in a room, something completely really changes in the room, even a small candle, that the candle can dispel the darkness. The room really does change. Darkness is not more powerful than light. If it was, then the light couldn't be seen. And so as simple as that is, this is the message that John wants to get across to us. This is what light does. Light overcomes like a candle overcomes darkness. Now, how does this light show up in John's gospel? Well, John's gospel is this beautiful gospel that is designed around presenting certain miracles of Jesus. And the, the light shows up in the, Jesus' abundance when he produces an abundance of, of wine made from water in John chapter 2. The light comes in mercy when an official son is healed. The light comes when a lame man is healed in John chapter 5. When he rescues the disciples at the Sea of, of Galilee in John chapter 6. When Jesus heals a man who has been blind from birth. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, John 11. And of course, in his own resurrection. Because the darkness of this world, characterized by death, cannot hold back this one who rises from the dead. And so the person and work of Christ is really the light. And he's the one who overcomes the darkness. In Christ, we have the revealing of God's character and embodying God's intentions. Light exposes and light also reveals. And when we, have, when we see Jesus in John's gospel encountering the Pharisees, encountering the religious leaders of Jerusalem, he is exposing their unbelief. To encounter Jesus is to have your belief system brought to the light. Central to that religious, legalistic way of living was a stance toward people that was condemning. And the light that Jesus brings is the light of grace. And this is characterized very clearly in John chapter 8 when a woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus. 
And there's a gathering of scribes and Pharisees who have rocks in their hands ready to stone her. And Jesus then proposes, let him, verse 7, John chapter 8, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Now there's a long silence. Jesus begins to write in the sand, and we're not quite sure what he's writing. Maybe he's writing a further further application of mercy in God's law. Maybe he's writing down the sins of these men that he knows, the sins they should confess. But slowly, rock by rock, they are dropped, and there is no one around to condemn her anymore. And Jesus says, where are they? Has no one, is there no one around to condemn you? And she says, they are not here. And she says, neither, then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So the light that Jesus brings is the light of grace, of forgiveness, and is a light that now empowers toward holiness. Of course, Jesus actually says, I am the light of the world. And those who follow him will not walk in darkness. John 8, 8, 12. So light is this entity that fills a room. Light is this overcoming grace. Light is this restorative grace that Jesus provides and gives to the world. And of course, he's willing to suffer and give his life in order to finally put out the darkness that we live in, the legalisms we live under, and the law of God that truly does condemn us, not as darkness, but as God's holy law. Jesus is willing to deliver us from that. So what is light in John's gospel? Of course, it is Jesus Christ. Now, let's take a look at one last area, and that is living in the light. Everyone who encounters Jesus Christ, who believes in Jesus Christ, is, is, is in, a, in a metaphorical way given light within them. They can see more clearly their own sin. They can see more clearly what it means to be a human being and what it means to live. When Jesus as the light comes into a person, that then personal darkness begins to be dealt with. Do you know that in your own life? Your own personal darkness begins to be dealt with. You see, God has been so gracious to you. His light has shined in you. And this is to change you. This has changed me. In fact, when a person is given sight, you see, like the, the man born blind who was given sight, to be able to see is really the gift of salvation. We can see Jesus more clearly and what he is requiring of us, and what it would look like to follow him. So for us in the church, what does it look like to live in the light? What does it look like to embody this light? Of course, we're not the gospel. But I would suggest, and that's I want to read for you a passage that I think feels or, or, or has, the, has the, the, I don't know, the, the quality of light. Colossians 3.12, listen to this. What does it look like for us to be to be living in the light, to embody the light. Here's the Apostle Paul, Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Above all, of all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I think that's a, just a simple description of, of really the Spirit of God working in us, the living out of the light that Jesus gives us, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, the, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive and put on love. In other words, when we think in terms of this extraordinary calling to follow Christ and to embody his love, it has to look like the qualities we see demonstrated in the life of Jesus. And it takes on a gracious, forgiving, um, embodied love. You see, what really is going on in the, the miracles of Jesus and in his goodness toward broken people, what's really going on is that he's presenting to the world a foretaste of the world we all imagine should be. See, when Ernest Hemingway died inside to words of that words like glorious and, and sacrifice, when he died, he, he lost a way of seeing all hope. When you watch Jesus, what you're watching, and what, when you see him interact and, and heal someone, what you're actually connecting with there is the hope that there can be a restored world. Tim Keller highlights this in his book on uh, uh, the reason for God. He says, We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order, the Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. And what I want to propose to you is this, is that God has created the church to be a foretaste of that world that people would long for or want. You see, when Jesus is describing light, he not only describes it as he being the light, but he actually, in, in Matthew 5, says something astonishing. He says to those who believe, he says to his church, you are the light of the world. And he goes on to, to instruct that do not hide your light, but so manifest good deeds that your heavenly Father will be glorified by those who observe them. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill, Matthew 5.14, cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. So that, so you may, so the, so let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The intention of Jesus is that he would manifest light through the body of Christ. 
we are in a sense a foretaste or a preview of what the world will look like. That's why the world needs the church. The church is a, a kind of visual aid for a world that is strife with racial tension, racial wars. The church is this unique entity that is, is beyond race, including all races, all nations, all tongues. And we're holding forth to the world the hope of a day when peace will reign on the earth. We hold this forth as embodied hope. Embodied hope in our relationships. Embodied hope in how we are living out our Christian life. You see, when Hemingway concludes that there is nothing beyond words like honor, sacrifice, and we're never to use the phrase in vain because things are done in vain. When Hemingway thinks this way, all he can see is the darkness of the human condition. And what John does is John's world is just as messed up as our world is. John's world is just as dark. And what John does is he tells us what Jesus does. He is a shining light, and the darkness cannot overcome him. And, of course, we're going to see in the book of Acts disciples and apostles and believers who follow this light, and it looks like the, the, the darkness wins because their lives are taken from them. And, of course, we know that that is not true, that the story does not end. Living in the light means, like Kiefer Sutherland got out of his car that day, in a small way, we are a, to be a faithful presence. See, in many ways in that moment, he loved his neighbor as himself. He embodied the kind of love that God is calling us to do toward each other and toward our neighbor. And so living in the light means watching, observing, noticing the things that you see observing where you can make a difference, a kind word, a forgiveness expressed. In other words, live in the moment. Stopped at a stoplight. Kiefer Sutherland lived in the moment, understood his set, a, a sense of responsibility in that moment, living in that moment. And one thing that characterizes our age is that we are distracted. It's very hard for us to focus. We're not living in the moment. May we be convinced as a church, as, as we, we live life together, that we understand that God is calling us to live in these moments, to live faithfully, to be a faithful presence for our, our neighbors, who many of them have embraced the ideas that Hemingway believed. You work next to people who may have that kind of spirit of Hemingway, they're not just cynical. They're despairing. They may be affluent, but they're not alive. They need, to, they need someone next to them to hold out hope for them. They need embodied love. Let's pray that God would renew us such that this would be a great joy for us to, to be this hope for our neighbors, for our community, and we would live this out, this embodied love. Let's pray.